the reading for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 to the end and chapter 6 verse 1 to 2 knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men but we are well known to God and I also trust are well known in your consciences for we do not commend ourselves to you but give you the opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart for if we are beside ourselves it is for God or if we are of sound mind it is for you for the love of God compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all then all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again verse 16 therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh even though we have known christ according to the flesh yet now we know him thus no longer therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who have reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation now then we are ambassadors for christ as though god were pleading through us we implore you on christ's behalf be reconciled to god for he made him who knew no sin to be seen for us that we might become the righteousness of god in him Chapter 6. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hey everybody, if you have a Bible, turn it open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse 11 through to chapter 6 verse 2. If you've been around our church at all, you would know that the ministry here is supported very, very well by our lay leadership team. That's our parish council, uh, who are members of our congregation who seek to serve the church by uh, by supporting the ministry and mission of the church. And within that, we have a great team of uh, church wardens who are responsible for the operations of the church. There, there we have uh, Petra Pike, who is responsible for finance, and uh, Matt Os Osborne, who is um, responsible for the property, and Evan Beattie, responsible for HR. And those guys put in huge amount of effort and time to make sure that our church is running properly and according to regulations and all, all of that stuff. They put so much work into making my life a joy and my ministry life a joy. Uh, that 
experience of being supported by church wardens and parish council was not the experience of a guy named Charles Simeon. He was a student at Cambridge uh, in the 18th century and uh, it was at Cambridge actually that he came to become a Christian which I'll talk about in a little while but uh, while he was a, a, a student at Cambridge he used to walk past Holy Trinity Cambridge the Anglican church there in Cambridge uh, just near the university he used to walk by and he just used to dream about one day having a ministry in that church uh, specifically to the students of Cambridge and um, one day his dreams came true uh, by God, God's providence. The, um, the bishop appointed him to be vicar of Holy Trinity Cambridge. Uh, but unlike my situation experience here, he was met with, with just hardcore resistance and opposition, uh, specifically by the church wardens and parish council of the church, uh, to the extent that when he was appointed as a 23-year-old, um, they, in, on his first Sunday, locked all of the pews. You know, they used to have these old wooden pews with little doors on them. They locked all of the pews so that no one could sit down to hear him preach. Their main, um, their main problem with him was that he had become a Christian at university and had become an evangelical, gospel-loving, Bible-preaching Christian, uh, otherwise known as a Christian. And... Um, <laughs> and this church was not that kind of church. It, it wasn't evangelical, didn't preach the gospel. And the church wardens and the people of the church had their hearts set on the associate pastor of the time, the uh, Jimmy Young figure at Holy Trinity Cambridge. They had their hearts set on him becoming the vicar. And when this guy, Charles Simeon, was made the vicar, they just rebelled. So they locked the pew so that he couldn't preach. They prevented him from speaking at the evening service for 12 consecutive years. And then when he started his own evening service to minister to the, the, the students at the university, they locked the church so that he couldn't even have his service in the church. When he started putting chairs in the aisles so that even though the pews were locked, people could sit, you know, jammed into the aisle, the church wardens took those chairs and threw them out into the courtyard of the church. And yet, in the midst of all of that just visceral opposition, he stayed there and preached the gospel for 54 years until a couple of months before his death. I wonder if you've ever experienced any kind of opposition, any kind of enmity from people because of your love for the gospel, your desire to share the gospel. I, I haven't really. I mean, very rarely have I experienced any kind of cost for being a minister of the gospel. I know other people in our church have experienced far more. Uh, some have been ostracized from their family. Uh, some have even experienced threat of physical violence. And the question I have this morning is, what motivates a person like Charles Simeon, a person like those we know who have suffered for the gospel, what motivates them to keep 
going? What motivates them to stay true to their calling as ministers of the gospel in the midst of great opposition? Now, obviously, you know, this is the context for Paul as he speaks to the Corinthians. He is facing severe opposition from those super apostles back in Corinth who are undermining his ministry, as well as all of just the inherent threats and dangers of being an apostle in the first century in the midst of great opposition and persecution. And here in this passage, he's going to offer us three motivations to keep going, to stay true to Jesus and the message of the gospel in the midst of opposition. Three motivations to stay true. So, number one, the fear of God. Let's read verse 10 to 11. I'll dip back into the last verse of the passage we looked at last week and then into the first of this passage. 5 to 10. Uh, sorry, chapter 5, uh, verse 10 to 11. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. What Paul is saying here is that the, the fear of the Lord is motivating him to share the gospel with people openly and clearly and plainly. Since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Essentially, what he's saying here is because he knows from verse 10, that he is going to stand before God in judgment, then that actually frees him to not consider so much what his opponents are saying about him or what these, um, his enemies are plotting against him. He knows that because it's God who will judge him, then he doesn't need to worry about his detractors. He can stay on track, focused on the thing that God has called him to do. In the words of his fellow apostle Tupac, only God can judge him, right? Only God can judge me, Paul says. Therefore, I don't need to be worried so much about what men think of me, what those super apostles think of me, not even what these dear brothers and sisters in Corinth think of him, because he knows that it's God, ultimately, who is going to judge him for his life and for his ministry. And so the fear of God motivates him to stay on track in the midst of great opposition. The fear of God. Number two, the love of God. So verse 14 to 15. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. See that? See the dynamic at work there? He says, love compels us. Because we can see the example of Jesus, the great act of love, the greatest act of love anyone has ever done on behalf of another. That Jesus, in laying down his own life for us, compels us by his love to lay down our lives for others. 
So the motivation to keep going is to follow in the example of their crucified Messiah. Love compels us. Jesus laid down his life for us and so we, in response, lay down our lives for others. We're not so concerned about what people are saying about us. We're not so concerned about how the world is judging us. We, compelled by love, are dying to ourselves for the sake of others. And this, of course, is exactly the example that Jesus set for us in his own self-determined, free, giving up of himself, his own free choice to lay down his life, even for his enemies. We'll get to that more in a minute. But in his example of self-giving, he sets for us the course of our own life and ministry, that we would lay down our lives for others. He says as much to his disciples in Mark chapter 10. He says this, Jesus called them over, his disciples called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, just as me, the Son of Man, just as I have not come to be served, but to serve, to lay down my life as a ransom for many, right? To give myself for the sake of others, so you, if you are my, my disciples, will do the same. Your life, Jesus says, will be a crucified life. It will be a cross-shaped life. And so Paul, in living this way, is merely doing what Jesus said his disciples would do after him, to lay down their lives for the sake of others. And it motivates him to keep going even when those people he's laying his life down for are turning away from him, are mocking him, are undermining him. Love compels us, he says. might just be worth having a word here on our current situations, particularly those of us in Melbourne. We've now entered into stage four restrictions during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're being asked to limit our own freedoms and liberties for the sake of the greater good. And so I think in light of what we've just heard from Jesus and from Paul, our calling here is fairly clear. I think as Christians who understand the gospel and who have been called to a cross-shaped life, we ought to be the ones who, rather than appealing to our rights, 
rather than shaking our fists and demanding our liberties, we ought to be the ones more than anyone else who are laying down our lives, right? Laying down our freedoms, our liberties, our rights for the sake of others. We are called to be servants and slaves of all. Jesus says it's the Gentiles who lord it over others, who are tyrannical in their demand to be served. But no, we are called to lay down our lives in the service of others. Jesus said the two greatest commandments were to love God and to love our neighbours as ourselves. And so I think it's incumbent on us as Christians, you know, the kind of, the kind of general response of Christians to what we're being called to do at the moment should be a voluntary, self-sacrificial giving up of our own rights for the good of those around us. Now, staying on this motivation of the love of God, we have in this passage, just the centerpiece of this passage, and and one of the most beautiful and clear explanations of the gospel in the New Testament. Uh, In verse 21, this is what it says. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. He says, God made him, that's Jesus, the one who did not know sin, right? Did not have any sin, lived a sinless life. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the sinlessness of God, the perfection of God. This is an explanation of what we call substitutionary atonement. That is that Jesus was substituted for us. He took our place on the cross. That where we deserve death, he died for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, right? To to take upon himself the sins of the world so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is, so we might have his perfect life credited to us. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Jesus, the sinless, guiltless one, receives the condemnation that we deserved and we in turn receive his righteousness, his perfections, his rightness with God. This is the most extraordinary and scandalous and beautiful truth in the universe. And it's the heart, at the heart of what Paul believes about the love of God. That God did this for us, on our behalf, for our sake. I think Paul, as he's writing these words, had in mind something he was very familiar with as a Jew. He probably had in mind Isaiah chapter 53, 
definitely had in that, that in mind. If you haven't read that before, pause this now and go and read it. Beautiful, prophetic words about what Jesus would do for us on the cross. Yeah, I think he also had in mind the sacrificial system of the old covenant whereby the people of Israel could confer their sins, right? Transfer their sins onto the head of a sacrificial animal and in so doing could, could be pardoned from the consequences of their sin, the transference of their sin onto a substitute, a sacrificial substitute. And so here he explains the transaction that happens at the cross where Jesus takes on our sins and where we take on his righteousness. And this is exactly what Charles Simeon, who I spoke to you about at the beginning of this message, what he came to understand when he first became a Christian. He had been raised... uh, not as a church-going person. He had no personal faith in Jesus. And yet when he got to Cambridge as a student, uh, he was told that he would, at Easter, he would have to take the Lord's Supper. He would have to partake in communion at the chapel. And for some reason, even as an unbeliever, this just terrified him. The idea of, of participating in this sacred kind of Christian Ritual in this sacrament without having saving faith himself really terrified him and, and it caused him to want to look into it more. And by God's providence, he picked up a, a book by Bishop Wilson, which explained to him through, through uh, explaining what the Lord's Supper was, it explained to him what the gospel was, and it was there that he came to saving faith in Jesus. I want to read for you his own uh, account of what happened as he came to see Jesus as his atoning substitute, right? This is what he says in Passion Week, in in Easter Week. As I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. The thought came to my mind, what? May I transfer all my guilt onto another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus And on the Wednesday began to have a hope of mercy. On the Thursday, that hope increased. On the Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4, I awoke early with those words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From that hour... Peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Saviour. This is the power of God's love demonstrated 
in the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross for us. And the outcome of this, the decisive event in human history, the literal crux of human history, Jesus on the cross, the the outcome of that for everyone who, like Charles Simeon, lays their sin on the head of him who died in their place. The outcome of all of this is in verse 17 to 19. This is what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. The outcome of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross is that God no longer counts my trespasses or sins against me, but instead has reconciled me to himself and made me a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. I am a new creation in Christ. That's what Charles Simeon experienced on that Easter day. In the 18th century, it's what many of us have experienced in our own lives. And this idea of reconciliation, it's, uh, it's a word now that is being used a whole lot more, particularly in light of the movement to bring reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Uh, but the sense that Paul has of it here is that God is reconciling himself to the world that is God is taking this world who has turned its back on him the world who is in effect declared war against him and he is reconciling his enemies to himself i like the way that the good news bible puts verse 18 it says all of this is done by god who through christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. That's the sense here, is that God is doing all of this for us. This is his initiative. He has accomplished it from start to finish. And that through Christ, through this great act of love, substitutionary atonement, right, the great exchange, through this mechanism, he is turning his enemies into friends. So that you, if you are in Christ today, can say, though once I was an enemy of God, I'm now a friend of God. I've been given Christ's righteousness. I have been adopted into God's family. I have been made a son and an heir of God himself. I've been reconciled. Now, all of this, this act of this God making us 
turning us from enemies into his friends. It not only changes our status before him, but also changes our calling before him. And so that's point three. The call of God motivates us in the midst of opposition. So in verse 20 of chapter 5 through to verse 2 of chapter 6, he says, therefore, right, this in effect, the, the outcome of all of this that we've discussed, this beautiful gospel work, the outcome, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. How does the message of reconciliation, that God is reconciling the world to himself through the death of his son, how does that message of reconciliation reach the ears of God's enemies? Well, it happens through us. It happens through those of us who have already been reconciled. We are now the instruments that God uses, the mouthpiece of God, to share this great news of reconciliation with those who are not yet reconciled. We are his ambassadors. What is an ambassador? It's simply someone who goes to a foreign country and represents his native country in that foreign country. Right? He represents their interests and their message in the foreign country and so it is with us we are ambassadors of christ right our country is heaven that's our home and while here on the earth we are representatives of christ himself and so our message is the message of christ himself our message as ambassadors is the message of reconciliation and so our calling that motivates us to keep going even in the midst of opposition even in the midst of slammed doors and broken friendships, right? In the midst of all of the muck and grime and darkness of this present age, the message, the calling that we have is to be an ambassador of Christ, to share the message of reconciliation. It's a beautiful message that we get to share, isn't it? It's a message of victory over darkness. It's a message of renewed relationship where it was broken. It's a message actually that gives people everything that they so deeply desire, even if they don't know it. We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, I know just from my own pitiful experience, I can guess from your own that we haven't always been good ambassadors for Christ, not always been good representatives of him to the world through our actions and through our words or perhaps through our lack of words, from our lack of sharing this good news with others. And so if that's you today, 
if you know that you haven't been sharing that news of reconciliation as you have been called to, as you ought to, first of all, know this. Remember, go back to the start. Remember this. (laughs) Jesus has already taken upon you all of your sin, including the sin of not being a good ambassador, and has given you his righteousness. So know that. Be comforted by that truth first and foremost. But then also it might be worth asking yourself, why is it? Good for me to ask myself, why is it that I haven't been active in my role as an ambassador for Christ? I haven't been active in sharing this beautiful, gorgeous news of the the gospel with others. I think the answer probably lies in the first couple of points of this message. First of all, fear. The fear of God compels us to keep going and motivates us to keep going. Then I think it's the fear of man that stops us, right? The fear of man can stop us from sharing this gospel news because as soon as we start being too preoccupied with what people think, then we necessarily think less of what God thinks and we're more likely to, uh, to conform to the culture around us. I love what Oswald Chambers said about the fear of God. He said, uh, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And there's some truth to that, I think. That when we understand and remember, as Paul said at the beginning, that it's God who judges us. As Tupac said, that only God can judge me. I had to get that in another time, sorry. Right, when we remember that truth, then it frees us from being hostage to what people think of us. From being overcome with fear about how someone might respond to me sharing the good news with them. My experience is that 99.9% of that fear of people hating me for sharing the good news with them is completely unfounded, like so many of our anxieties. It has no basis in reality. So the fear of man can prevent us. I think also just a lack of living in the love of God can prevent us from sharing the good news. The antidote to that is to meditate on the love of God for us, primarily shown to us in the death of his son on our behalf. I would commend to you, if you have grown a little bit dry towards the things of God, if you have grown a little bit hard-hearted towards his own love for you, That will express itself in a lack of desire to share the good news with others because you yourself have kind of forgotten how good that news is. And so the antidote for that is simply to dwell on, meditate on, marinate yourself in, right? Just saturate yourself in the love of God in Jesus. Take some time to reflect on, to visualize, to pray through, to read through what Jesus did for you on the cross and all that means for you now as a new creation in Christ. 
And then having been filled up with gratitude, with thanksgiving, you can then let it spill over into others as you share this good news with them. We're going to look next week into the kind of character of Paul in this ministry he has of reconciliation with others. And so I encourage you to come back next week and jump back into 2 Corinthians with us. But in the meantime, let me pray for us. First, that we would know the fear of God, the love of God, and the call of God revealed to us here in this passage. And then that we would go as his ambassadors, to share that good news with others. Let's pray together. Father, we trust that your word is powerful and authoritative, not only to tell us what to do, but to change us to be more like the people you want us to be. So I thank you for this time that we've had and ask that the, the result of it, the product of it, would be a people who are overjoyed to share this good news with those around them. Lord, please show us even this week, even in the midst of lockdown, opportunities, ways and means for us to take God's enemies and make them his friends through what Jesus has done for them and us on the cross. Bless this work. Bless it richly. May we, next week as we come together, may we be filled with stories of how you have been working through us as your ambassadors in the coming week. We trust you. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.